going to continue now reading from the 37th chapter of Genesis. So that's verses 12 to 36. This is about page 38 in the Pew Bibles. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamental robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judas said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe into the blood. They took the ornamental robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Thanks be to God for his word. We're doing something a bit different tonight. I, I felt like I want to be closer to you guys, so I'm going to stand in front of the table today. Um, now, this is the first time I've used this. It's sounding okay. This is either Madonna or Wiggles. I'm not sure which one to decide, but I won't be dancing, so rest assured. Okay, well, tonight we're going to be looking at this uh, very famous story, a story we all know and love. Um, and, and it's always interesting coming to a story that we all know. Uh, we come with presuppositions, but as we come to this story again, well, let us ask God for his help, that we might learn of God, who he is, how he has acted in history, 
and how we are to respond to him. So let's turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have acted in history. And we pray, Lord, that tonight as we consider this story, that we may learn of who you are and how we are to respond to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, have you guys ever felt or have you ever thought in your mind, where is God in the world? Where is God? We look around the world, the prayers we heard before, the mess, the turmoil, political turmoil, the the things that are happening in the Catholic Church. Where is God in the world? What is God doing about all these things? Well, today I would like to tell you a story about a man whose life was one of those rags to riches story, but it became a life that was extremely messy, very messy. It was a, a, it's a story about a great scandal, a messy scandal, a conspiracy. Now, this is a story of this guy. Anyone know who he is? Yes, Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. That's right. Now, this man was born in 1931. He died earlier this year in April. Now, the first half of his life was one of those from rags to riches story. He was successful in all he did. He joined the military. He joined the Marines. He joined as a lieutenant. And he quickly rose up to the rank of captain. Very successful. He went to law school. Uh, and he did extremely well in that. And this man, at the age of 28, he became the youngest man ever to become the administrative assistant to a U.S. senator. Extremely successful. 28 years of age. I'm well past that. Did nothing like that. 28 years of age. He ran political campaigns. Extremely successful. He started his own law firm. Extremely successful. Made huge amounts of money. Now, things for him went from great to better. Now, in 1968, he met Richard Nixon. He ran his political campaign, his campaign to become president. So at the age of 37 now, ran his campaign for Richard Nixon, and they won. They won. Extremely successful. At 38 years of age, they, well, Nixon became president. And he went into the administration as his special counsel. So very powerful, right there next to the president. At at 41 years of age, he reached the peak of all he could accomplish. So this was a man, a self-made man, a man who achieved a lot of greatness in the eyes of the world. But then just two years later, in 1974, he was thrown into prison, thrown into prison for one of the biggest political scandal in the history of the U.S. Now, do you remember what that scandal was about? I'm sure those who recognize him would know. What was that scandal? Watergate. That's right, the Watergate scandal in 1974. Around that time, Australia, we had our own scandal. Remember that? The the dismissal of the prime minister was around that time as well. But anyway, this guy was involved in this massive political scandal. And so his life, which was Going so well was all stuffed up, was a mess, a total mess. But the story we'll be looking at today is also a scandalous story. It's a story of intrigue, of conspiracy, of deception. And the story we'll be looking at today is the story of Joseph. Now, I'm sure many of us would know this story. We would have 
heard it before in Sunday school or youth group as we're growing up, or even if you haven't, if you're old enough, do you remember uh, many years ago there, there was a musical on this, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anyone go to see that? Okay, that shows your age. <laughs> a long time ago. Okay. Well, well, this is a famous story. But when we look at this story, this story that's scandalous, full of deception and conspiracy, we look at this story again, and we're left wondering, where is God? What is God doing? Why would God allow his people to become like what they have become? These were God's people, remember. They were the people of the promise. So let's consider this story. We'll think about this story again. Now, this is a story about Joseph, but more so a story about his father, Jacob. Now, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. We all know Abraham, the guy who was promised by God to be blessed in amazing ways. He was the son of Isaac. We heard last week he was the younger of the twin. He was the one who deceived his father for the blessing. Now, by this stage in chapter 37, Jacob had 12 of his own sons. So he's been blessed in that way. And that's a huge blessing, 12 sons. Now, as we look at this story and as we consider and focus on this one family, this family that was meant to be blessed by God in great ways, we see a family that's fractured, a family that's dysfunctional. And no one involved helped the situation. They made it from bad to worse. Now, take Jacob, for example. He was the father. Now, he was just a father like his own father. If you remember Isaac from last week, Isaac had a favorite son. He favored his oldest son. Remember that? He favored Esau because he was the manly one. He was the hairy one. He went out and hunted and did manly stuff. And so Isaac favored that son. Well, Jacob here didn't learn from the mistake of his father. Having favoritism is not a good thing. Well, he didn't learn from that. He had his own favorite, and that was Joseph. And he didn't do anything to hide that fact. We read in verse 3, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Didn't hide the fact at all. And he did something else that was crazy. He made for this particular son a richly ornamented robe so that he would stand out in the family, that this is the favorite son. Amongst all the brothers, this guy walks around in his robe, decorated, standing bold and proud that he is the favorite son. Now, clothing in the ancient world was a symbol of status, and so that's what Joseph had. He had this symbol of status, wearing this robe around. And I'm sure it's somewhat true today. You can sort of see the status of someone by what they wear, can't you? Have a look around the room. Can we sort of tell who's... Uh, our status by what we wear, tell where we're from. I, I, I suspect some of us can tell that, you know, by the way, Owen dress is from the country. <laughs> can you tell that? <laughs> and by the way, I dress, I'm from, I'm, everything's made in China, so I'm from China. No. Well, anyway, reading this, reading this story, we must think how stupid Jacob was to follow in the flaws of his father, to have a favorite son, to make it so obvious if you want a harmonious, loving family, you don't do that. That's just silly. It's ridiculous. Now, I've got two friends. Now, these are the top of friends I have. On several occasions, it wasn't just one, several occasions, they asked me, 
So now I've got three of my three kids. And they ask me, so, so which is your favorite? <laughs> which is your favorite child? And they're serious. They really want to know, which is your favorite? And I said, no, I don't have a favorite. I love them all equally. They don't believe me. They said, surely you love your son more than your daughter. He's the heir. He's, he's going to be the man. They won't believe me, but I said, no, I love them all equally. And anyone in their right mind, any parent in their right mind that wants to bring up a family that's harmonious and in love, you don't show favoritism in this way. And so Jacob here didn't help the family situation. It's dysfunctional. It was divided. Now, what about the brothers? Well, they didn't help the situation either. They saw how the father loved Joseph. They saw that he got all the special treatment, probably didn't have to do the chores. And so they hated Joseph. They hated Joseph with, with intensity. They despised him. A good brother, a good brothers, you expect to just love him anyway because they are of the same blood and flesh. But they hated him. Didn't help the family situation. What about Joseph? Well, he didn't help either, did he? He was like this spoiled brat. He had this robe. He walked around. He was proud. I am the favorite son. How good is that? And he knew that. Didn't help the situation. And what happened when he had, um, had those two dreams? So the first dream, he saw that his sheep rose and stood upright, and the sheaves of his brothers, they bowed down towards him. And he had another dream, and he, this time he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down before him. Now, if you had those type of dreams, and you know that that's about yourself, it, it would sort of make sense for the harmony and, and for the benefit of the family. You keep that to yourself. You know, that's what Joseph should have done. I mean, if I had that, those type of dreams that uh, my two younger brothers uh, to, uh, will one day, like the stars, bow down to me and, and, and serve me as their master. And if I were to tell my brothers, hey, this is what I dreamed last night, dreamed, dreamt of last night, they would either think I'm crazy or they, they would just think I've got a big head. And so that's what happened here. They're thinking, Joseph, you are full of yourself. So Joseph himself, everyone in the family, the father, the brothers, Joseph himself, they didn't help in Fixing up this situation, they made it from bad to worse. So what happened? There's favoritism, there's hatred, and there's this, there's this pride. What happened? Well, Jacob's favoritism turns this normal sibling rivalry into deadly hatred. And so one day, the brothers, they were out tending the sheep. Joseph, he was home. He was 17 years old. That's old enough to be a shepherd. But he was at home, perhaps because he's a spoiled brat. Well, he was told to go to his brothers to bring back a report. Now, I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not a trained psychiatrist. And I'm not sure if there's any other ologists, but I'm none of those. But you don't need to be one of those to work out that this family has issues, big issues. Because look, look at what the brothers did. As Joseph was approaching from the distance, the brothers together were conspiring to kill him, to get rid of him. Think about that. These were brothers of the same blood and flesh. They weren't children as, as, at all. You know, you, you might um, understand children thinking, I'll kill you. 
and you might they might get away with that. But these were adults, you see. These were adults. They were older than Joseph. They were in their 20s, in their 30s. Adult men conspiring to kill their brother. That's ruthless. And so we see here the intensity of their hatred was strong. The intensity of their envy. Now, when I was a lot younger, I've got two younger brothers, we would often fight. We would wrestle. We'll get physical, and that's okay. We were kids. But now that we're adults, we don't do that. We might fight verbally. We might argue against each other. But you just don't fight as adults with your brothers physically. That's just ridiculous. But yet here, we can see the intensity of their hatred, that they will conspire to kill their brother. Now, you just must just, just imagine what that situation would have been like. Uh, this brother approaching their brothers, suddenly gets snatched. His robes get stripped off him and he's thrown into the cistern. He's probably crying, but the brothers are not, not worrying about that. And then what happened? Well, the brothers, they noticed the Ishmaelites, these merchants passing by. And so Judah, one of the brothers, he, said, he suggested to the others, well, let's not shed his blood. I mean, he is our brother. Let's just sell him. Sell him off. And that's what they did. They sold him off as a slave. But then they had a problem. I mean, Jacob was expecting Joseph to return. What are we going to tell father now that we've sold him off? And so they conspired this. They ripped up his robe and they dipped it in the blood of a goat. This is going to fool that old man. A bloody robe. So they finally went home, showed the father this blood-soaked robe. And Jacob, imagine, heart churning, in tears, in heartache. The son who he sent away has not returned. But he thought here that he was killed by some animal. Now, do you notice the irony here? There's an irony if you remember what we heard last week. Now, remember Jacob, how he deceived his father? He deceived his father with goat skin, remember that? He tried to pretend to be like his older brother, Harry, who used goat skin. Well, the irony here is that his sons now deceive him with a goat as well, but the blood of a goat. And so that's our story here. It's quite tragic. Sibling rivalry gone completely wrong, completely bad. But when we read of this story and when we remember the promises that God has made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, we must think, what's going on? Where is God? I thought God promised Abraham greatness, great name, Great nation, many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. What is God doing? Where is God? Well, if you look at this, if, 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 if it's anything, it can't be further from the truth. Those covenant promises, they're nowhere to be seen. If you look at this family, this dysfunctional family, well, it seems like God's promises have failed. It seems like God's not doing his bit. If you look at this family with this division, we, you would pity this family. No sign of greatness at all. So where is God? What happened to those promises that God made? Well, you see, in this chapter, God doesn't appear anywhere. 
we just see a series of human sin. The sin of Jacob, sin of the brother, sin of Joseph. All going wrong. Seems like they were um, trying to stuff up God's plan, really. Seems like God had no involvement at all. God's not mentioned. But here's the thing. I want you to notice this. Some two hints, two important hints that lets us see that perhaps God was involved in this chapter, even though he's not mentioned by name. Two hints that perhaps God was working behind the scene to bring about something that we don't know of yet. Now, the first of these hints was that Joseph was given these dreams, these two dreams. They're not just any dreams, not just those from our subconscious mind. They don't mean anything. But you see, these dreams that Joseph received, they were given by God. They were a divine revelation of what will happen in the future. So if that was God's work, giving Joseph those dreams, what are we to make of that? Well, we can see there that God was acting behind the scene. In a sense, God was giving Joseph that, those dreams so that he would be hated more by his brothers. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, that's what happened. Because of those dreams, Joseph was hated more by his brothers, and that eventually led to him being sold as a slave. And so that's the first hint, that perhaps God was behind the scene working, moving in some profound un. Uh, way that we don't understand. So that's the first thing that perhaps God was behind the scene working. Now there's another hint here, another hint that shows that perhaps God was working to do his thing. Now do you notice here the special attention in this, in this chapter given to this unnamed man, this man who directed Joseph to his brothers? They went to Shechem, Joseph couldn't find him, but then there's this unnamed man out of nowhere directing him towards his brothers. And the result of that was that he was sold off as a slave. So in a sense, this, this unnamed man contributed to the downfall of Joseph. Now, so far in Genesis, all the unnamed men, all the unnamed men so far, turn out to be angels or messengers of God. Now, we're not told that here. We're not told that these, this unnamed man was an angel. But nonetheless, he served to, to move Joseph to, into the hands of his brothers so that he would be sold off. And so we've got these two hints here. Perhaps God was working behind the scene, doing something strange, not to fix up the family situation, but moving Joseph towards being hated more by his brothers and then moving him towards being sold as a slave. But now we're left with a, somewhat of a dilemma. Why, if that was God, why would God do such a thing? The family was still dysfunctional. Why not solve that problem? Why would God do such a thing? Well, that's what we'll see over the next several weeks. But when we go to the end of Genesis chapter 50, towards the end of Genesis chapter 50, well, this is what we see. We see that God's hand was indeed at work moving Joseph to be hated by his brothers, moving Joseph so that he'll be sold off as a slave to Egypt. Because by the end of Genesis, we see this verse, we see Joseph saying this. Joseph saying to his brothers, after rising to power, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, 
but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, God's hand was at work. Even in this evilness, the wickedness of these people, God was at work moving so that at the end, the promises of God are closer. There is greatness in the, in the family now. He's the second most powerful man at, at that time. And it looks like their lives will be preserved, that they might eventually become that great nation. So that's our story. No mention of God, but we do see clues that God was at work despite human wickedness, in spite of human wickedness. And in this story, we get a glimpse of who God is. Now, our understanding of God must be shaped of how he has acted in, acted in history. And this is the God we believe in. Now, what we believe as Christians is that God is a sovereign God. That is, he's in control. That is, he's powerful. That is, that even human wickedness, even human disobedience cannot stuff up God's plan. Jacob was evil. The brothers were evil. Joseph was evil. But they did not stuff up God's plan that the promises will indeed be fulfilled. And you see what this was, in a sense, looking forward to. Because one day, there will be the greatest display of human wickedness, the greatest display of human uh, evilness, and that is on the person of Jesus. Because what happened with Jesus? He was betrayed by one of his close friends, deserted by all his friends at the time of need. He was hated by his own people. And then he was unjustly condemned by the governor. And finally, oh, he was murdered by the very people he created. That's the greatest display of human evilness, that humankind would murder their maker, would kill their maker. And so you, you can just imagine at the foot at the cross when Jesus died, you can just imagine Satan and his demons throwing a party thinking that they won. That they won that evil triumph. But you see, despite human wickedness and evilness, God's plan was not stuffed up. In fact, that was part of God's plan. And so if we look at this verse in Acts chapter 2, Peter, after the resurrection of Jesus, says this. He says, This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. That is God purpose was that Jesus would be handed over to these evil people and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him and so what we're seeing here what we're learning today is who God is we know God by how he has acted in history and we see that God's good purposes will prevail, even though humans are wicked, in spite of human evilness. You see, in that situation, the greatest display of evilness came the greatest good to mankind. And that is, we can now be saved. People can now be saved. People can now have a right relationship with God because of that great display of wickedness, but yet God using that to bring about the greatest good. 
And so knowing this today, knowing this, that our God is a powerful God, a God who is sovereign, that is, he's in control, that nothing is out of his control, that there are no accidents in a sense. Knowing this should bring us great comfort. If we believe in God, this brings us amazing comfort because nothing is out of his control. And so whatever we go through in life, how hard it might be, how tough it might be, how painful it might be, that is not out of God's control. And it's no accident. And this is what we believe as Christians. Things happen for a reason. There are no mistakes in God's mind. Things happen for a reason. But we might never know what those reasons are. So we can't presume on that. We might never know until we return home to God. But we believe because it's promised to us. And we read this in Romans. Romans chapter 8. We can trust God because he's promised this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. So you see there, despite what we are going through in life, messy life, human wickedness and evilness, we can still trust that God is working for the good of those who love him, for those who belong to him, those who believe in Jesus. That's reassuring, isn't it? has to be reassuring for us Christians, living through life, knowing that in God's eyes there are no accidents. God is in full control. As tough as times might be, as messy as they might be, like Chuck Colson going into prison, as messy as they might be, God is in control, and that must bring us great comfort. Now, remember Chuck Colson guy I spoke at at the beginning. Went from rags to riches and in an instant dropped down to the pits. Was thrown into prison. His life was a mess. Now you might not realize this of him, but the second half of his life was remarkable. In 1972, when he left the White House, he's reached his peak in his career. He's done all he, he wanted to do. He's achieved greatness. But yet he went home still feeling this deep sense of emptiness inside of him. Now, this was a powerful man. Did all he did in the eyes of the world to be powerful, to be great. But yet inside, he felt this deep sense of emptiness. And so he began to question life, ask questions about life. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And so he spoke to one of his friends. Now, this, is, this was a friend, a close friend of him, who gave him a book by C.S. Lewis, Me Christianity. I'm sure many of us would have read that, Me Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And this friend of him, one night, read a chapter to him from this book, the chapter, The Great Vice, about human sin. And on that night, on that night, he was convicted. He was convinced that he was a selfish person, that he did do wrong. He did do wrong in the scandal. And after that, he became a Christian. This was in the midst of this scandal uh, coming to the fore. And then after that, well, he was thrown into prison. He did go to prison. But what you may not have realized was that he was thrown to, into prison for charges 
that he revealed, charges that he confessed to. There were these other charges that were laid against him, but he was innocent of them, and he could have got away. But after becoming Christian, what he did was he confessed. He knew he did wrong. He was convicted of his sin. He told them, and he was charged for that, something that he could have kept hidden. And so he went to jail for that. He went to prison, and he went to jail for seven months. His life, messy. He, he did wrong. He did evil, and he's suffering the consequence of that. From greatness down to the pits, working with the president next to him, now being thrown into prison. But things started to change around in prison. This one man, he did something wrong and deserved to go to prison. Things then started to go around. In prison, he started to see that these prison inmates, just like how he was before he became a Christian, were empty on the inside. He saw their emptiness. He saw their need of a new life. He saw their need of God. And so after serving his sentence for seven months, and after leaving prison, he started this ministry to prison prisoners, prison inmates. It's this ministry called Prison Fellowship. And this, this ministry has spread into 112 nations, and in America, there are 50,000 volunteers that go into prisons. And you know what they do? They go into prisons telling prisoners about Jesus, about the hope of eternal life, to fill this deep void inside them. And these volunteers tell people about the gospel. They run Bible studies in prison. They disciple these prisoners that they might live a new life after they leave, that they might live a new life for God. Now, their ministry to prison inmates is just like the ministry we see on university campus. Discipleship, telling the gospel, doing Bible study, but this was focused on, on those in prison. Now, do you know what happened? So let's think about this. One man did something wrong, went to prison for it. But through that one mistake, that evilness of this man, God did miraculous things. Because of that ministry, thousands of prisoners became Christians. This is over three, four decades now. Thousands. And these are gangsters, drug lords, drug addicts becoming Christians. Now, listen to a, a testimony of Chuck Holson. And he spoke of one gang leader. Big, muscular guy. One powerful gang leader inside prison. One day becoming a Christian. Because of their ministry. And because this gang leader became a Christian, half the gang became Christians as well. And then after prison, this gang leader, in some miraculous way, became a pastor of a church, focused at helping those leaving prison, that they might come to his church, that they might know of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Through the evilness of this one man years ago, through the evilness of this one man, God worked through that to bring about his good purposes. And that's what we see today in our passage. Our God is a powerful God, a sovereign God, a God who's in control. He works to bring about his good purposes despite human evilness, despite human wickedness. He works through all the messiness of life, whatever we're going through. And we can remember this promise. God is working for the good of those who love him. So do you love God? 
Do you know God's love for you? Because if you love God, then you can trust that God is working to bring about his good purposes in you. But if you don't love God, well, let me encourage you to find out, to study, to work out, and to discover that this God first loved you. Please come and speak to me if that is you. Let me pray.